Omni Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In omni Patris, Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laude to Jesus Christus, in secula. Hope you're all doing very well. Shout out to all my American brethren. Happy Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for. Here we are in this very difficult time, and it's a privilege to be a Christian in this time, to take up our cross in this time. So this is part three of The Conspiracy of Antichrist, part 11 of the Holy Bible series, based on my book, Introduction to the Holy Bible for Traditional Catholics. And I want to thank everybody for your support. Please pray for this apostolate for the achievement of its mission by, by God's grace and your prayers. If you have benefited from this apostolate, please become a patron. Any amount will help us, helps support our work, my family, and that's most appreciated. There will be a patron-only live broadcast this Friday or Saturday. I haven't figured it out yet. I want to try to get the uh, a good time for the Australian viewers. So uh, shout out to all my Australian brethren. Uh, but check the Patreon posts, all patrons, and I'll update you once I figure that out. So... Yes, yeah, so today is the continuation of the series on the Holy Bible. Uh, if you'd like to buy the book, the link is below, and uh, or become a patron. All the links are below. We're going to talk about what Bible you should buy as well. Um, so let me just make sure I'm on track with my notes here. Um, so what Bible should you buy? Well, there's only two translations that I recommend. One is the Dewey Reims, Chaloner version. There's really only the Chaloner version that you can buy. So most of the time when you when you see a Bible which is Dewey Reams, it is the Chaloner revision. And the so this is the one that I, I like a lot. This is a just a small pocket size Dewey Reams version. And uh, there's also, you can get, uh, Tan has one. I don't know if this is still in print, but Tan has a Dewey Reams. It's a lot bigger, so it's a lot easier to read. Um, now, in terms of translation, the Dewey Reams is the one that I recommend, and the other one that I do recommend is the second, the RSV Second Catholic Edition. And there's two reasons why I recommend these two translations, and not, I do not recommend any other translation. Do not use the NAB. Do not use the Knox Bible. I would not recommend it, and here's why. I would the Knox Bible uses what's called dynamic equivalence in terms of a translation. What that means is it uses an interpret an interpretation. So it is not a word for word translation. That is called formal equivalence. Formal equivalence means that there's one word in Latin or Greek and there's one word in English. And so it's sort of a one for one translation. Every word that's in the original language is in the translation. So that is called formal equivalence, but the dynamic equivalence, so that's the Knox Bible, that's the NAB, um, other English Bibles, dynamic equivalence has a certain amount of paraphrasing involved. So it is adding more words into the English translation than there are in the original language. So I think that is appropriate for other translations, but in, from my view, I do not believe that it's appropriate for the uh, Holy Scriptures. I, I think that the best way to do the Holy Scriptures is a word-for-word -word translation, which is formally equivalent instead of dynamically equivalent. And we're going to get far more in detail with that in this series. I have a whole section, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book where we go into detail, detailed linguistic analysis of these different Bible verses. There's a whole chart which compares all these different versions. Really, the best version is the original language, but since not everybody can read Greek or Latin or Hebrew, you have to, you know, look at these English translations. So even the Dewey Reims has certain deficiencies, which we'll get into eventually. But the other aspect of the Dewey Reims is that it follows the Christian biblical manuscript tradition, which comes out of the Septuagint and the Vulgate. And we're going to talk about that as we kind of chronologically go on in this series we're talking about. We'll talk about why that is. 
and we'll go into the history of that because so this series is right now we're in um the conspiracy of antichrist part three and the next show we're going to do the book of acts conspiracy of antichrist and then after that we'll do the book of revelation and then it's not only it's not until after revelation that we even get into the manuscript traditions because spoiler alert the pharisaical judaism is created which is tied to a new Hebrew manuscript tradition, which becomes the later Masoretic translation or the Masoretic manuscript tradition, which is what most Protestant Bibles and most Catholic Bibles, sadly, today are based on this manuscript tradition. Now, the RSV Second Catholic Edition is very good because we don't, the church does not reject the Hebrew. The church does take the Hebrew into consideration, but the Septuagint is essentially the main manuscript tradition. The The New Testament quotes the Septuagint about 75% of the time when it quotes uh, quotations for the Old Testament. But the second RSV is very good because it the translation is very formal. The language is quite good. It does take into consideration the Septuagint and the Vulgate and the Hebrew as well and puts them all together. So I think it's a very fine tranla- translation. There's two versions of the, the RSV that I'm familiar with. The RSV and the Make sure that it's the RSV Second Catholic Edition. There's a First Catholic Edition. Don't use that. Um, so this is the Bible that my wife uses. This is the Ignatius. Or I'm sorry. This is Ascension Press Adventure Bible, which is very good. It's especially great for beginners. If you're new to the Holy Scripture, this is a really great Bible for you because it has a, a ton of um, great charts and uh, timelines, and there's a really great introductory Bible reading plan, which we're the next show on Friday, we're going to do, we're going to talk about three different Bible reading plans. Uh, there's a beginner, ad, intermediate and advanced reading plan. And this one includes the beginner reading plan. It's very good. So I'd rec- definitely recommend this particular Bible for beginners. Um, the One of the downsides with the Dewey Reams is not that, not only that the language is more difficult English because it's from the 18th century. The text itself is also more difficult because it's just all line by line. There's no headings. There's no breaks. It's a lot more difficult to read. Um, but th- here's the Adventure Bible. All these links are below if you guys, if anybody wants to uh, get one of these Bibles for the new liturgical season, which is starting on Sunday. It's a great time to start a new Bible reading plan. So this is the other one that I like to use, which is the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, New Testament, 2nd Catholic Edition, against RSV, 2nd Catholic Edition. This one has the best study notes that I've ever seen in a Bible. Um, you, you can use Hadock. Hadock is a is a an, the really the best the best uh, patristic Bible uh, commentary is Lapide. And we'll talk about this in the in the future. But Lapide, Hadock are both very good. But Hadock, their historical and archaeological notes it's very academic, so it's not as easy for a beginner to read Hadock. But the the Ignatius Study Bible. They only have the New Testament out right now, but their study notes are absolutely f- excellent. Very, very good. Lots of historical information, lots of patristic information, lots of uh, Catholic doctrine information. Very good. Uh, shout out to Scott Hahn, all of his good work for the Holy Scriptures. So those are the um, three Bibles that I recommend, and for the reasons for that, I think, uh, especially for beginners, the RSV is very good. But the Dewey Reams, in my view, is the best text in terms of the actual text, the authoritative nature of it. So that's why I I always am quoting from the Dewey Reams when I read the Holy Scripture in this show. So let's move on. I told you last week that I threw together a uh, chart, and it wasn't very beautiful because my wife didn't make it. Well, guess what? My wife made the chart beautiful. Here it is. This is the cultural paradigm that we've been working with. So at the very top, you have the people. So we're talking about the contrast between, we're talking about the conspiracy of Antichrist. We're talking about the contrast between a people and the masses. The masses are a mob, which are simply manipulated by the elites. And that's exactly what we're going to see in today's story of the confrontation between our Lord and the conspiracy. So up here you have a people. That's what this is. A people receives logos. Through natural reason, Logos is the, the rational order of the universe, and a people is constituted by its own natural connection through its natural reason, 
with God, which helps it form a cultus, which is passed down through tradition, through the elders and piety, which then governs the whole society. So up, up top, the top half of the circle is the culture. The bottom half of the circle is the society. It's essentially the logos, the supernatural logos on the top, which governs the natural logos on the bottom. King, coin, kitchen, government, economy, family. With the Mosaic law, what you have is a revealed logos, a revealed logos of the cultists, a revelation of logos in God to Moses, which is against the reign of Satan through idolatry. And what you have in the Mosaic Laws, we've discussed, we have, you have a comprehensive people. You have all of these things. All of these things have been revealed by God in Mosaic Law to constitute a people. And we talked about, and, and former shows in this series, why did Israel break the government? It's because they did not pass this down to the next generation. The book of Judges in the very beginning, it says that the generations were broken down. Now, it, with, embedded within the Mosaic Law there are the prophecies of our Lord. And I'm just going to quickly go through a number of them which discuss this because the what has happened in original sin that the Mosaic Law is beginning to correct is the corruption of the peoples into the bondage of Satan. And so instead of following Logos, whether that's revealed in the Mosaic Law or Logos in the natural reason of man in the natural law, they are following after Satan. They are following after his law, which is the law of the will, which is simply non serviam, I will not serve, I reject logos, and it's the will of the powerful over the weak. And that is why you have, at the time of our Lord, you have entire peoples which are devoted to worshiping Satan. So the cultist itself is corrupted into worshiping Satan, worshiping demons. And this is what you have in any culture, any people, which becomes an empire. There's a, there's a, the, the movie by uh, Mel Gibson, Apocalypto, shows this very strikingly. You have this sort of Bushman culture, which is very rural, which is far more logocentric because they are, you know, they have the agrarian society. And then you have this contrast with the Aztecs who are worshiping Satan with human sacrifice. And so you have this bondage to Satan that exists in the world when our Lord comes. Now, why did our Lord become incarnate? 1 John 3.8 tells us exactly why. 1 John 3.8 says this. For this reason... Oh, we got the wrong passage. Okay. This is, this is the epistle where it talks about the Antichrist and what who the Antichrist is, the spirit of Antichrist, distinguishing he who rejects Jesus Christ as an antichrist and the end times figure who is the antichrist, the son of perdition. So he says, first John three, eight for this purpose, the son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? The bondage of peoples to Satan. So within, within the Mosaic law, you have the prophecies of the new people, not only Israel, but the nations. So you have all these peoples who are corrupted by worshiping Satan. You have Mo the Mosaic law brings the Israelites out in order that Logos may, come, be, be, may become incarnate. Now you have at the end of Genesis, Genesis is really, the whole book of Genesis is all about the tribe of Judah becoming the progenitors of the Christ who is to come. Now, so you have Genesis, at the end of Genesis, you have Jacob rejecting all of his sons, all of his firstborn sons to Judah. Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not be taken away from Judah, nor a ruler from his thigh till he come that is to be sent and he shall be the expectation of the nations. So you have this prophecy of Judah having a scepter the, the tribe of Judah having a scepter, meaning a kingdom, through Judah to rule the nations. Then moving on to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. I will raise up a prophet. Now, this is, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, okay? 
the Lord says to Moses, I will raise up, I will raise them up a prophet out of the midst of their brethren, like to thee, like to who? Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I shall command him. And he that will not hear his words, which he shall speak in my name, I will be the avenger. So Moses himself is prophesying another Moses. Now, there are many different prophets that came after Moses, but as we see in the gospel, the Pharisees and Sadducees say to St. John, are you the prophet? Because they know that there's a prophet like Moses, not just any old prophet. Now, what's different about Moses? Moses, first of all, he's a king. He leads the people in war. He's a king. He's a prophet. He speaks in the name of God, but he's also a lawgiver. Now, in, in this model of the people that we're talking about, Moses gives the logos of the Mosaic law, which is, in, is an imperfect revelation. It's not perfected yet because the logos had not become incarnate. But <clears throat> Moses says, I will raise up another, or God says, I will raise up another prophet like Moses. And what makes Moses different than all the other prophets is that he is a law giver. Now, then we go to Psalm 9, Verse 21, appoint, O Lord, a lawgiver over them that the Gentiles may know themselves to be but men. So we have this, again, this prophecy of a lawgiver over the Gentiles. This is the coming of Christ who comes to destroy the work of the devil. So what does our Lord do in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, we've talked about the senses of Scripture and what is typology. The, the concept of fulfillment means to take, it's basically the, the term fulfill means to fill up. It's like a glass. The, the purpose of a glass is to be filled. That's the purpose. Now, we do not make the glass for the sake of the glass. We make the glass for the sake of what's in the glass. It's filled up so that we can drink. Now, the Mosaic Law is, the, the fathers liken it to an architectural drawing. It's an architectural drawing so that the church can be built up. It is an architectural drawing so that all of the, the people, the new people, the new Israel can be built up. And so when our Lord says he has not come to destroy, but to fulfill, he is fulfilling the purpose of this. Now, remember, all of the things that were in a people were in... The Mosaic Law. You have cultus, which is the, the Aaronic priesthood, the sacrifice of the altar and the temple, the tent of, of meeting. You have the tradition, which is all of the body of laws. You have the elders, who are not only the Aaronic priesthood, but the Levites, and also every all the fathers, the, the fourth commandment, honor thy father and the mother. And then you have piety, which is the fourth commandment, passing down everything. So what does our Lord do? He does not scrap the whole system. He fulfills it. He perfects it. Right in, in, in St. Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, when he says, I have not come to destroy but to fulfill, he then begins the, the verses where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he starts quoting the law of Moses. So he says, I have not come to destroy the law of Moses, but to perfect the law of Moses. Moses said this, I say this. And so he is claiming for himself the authority of the lawgiver that was prophesied, the, the, the king that was prophesied from the tribe of Judah, the prophet that was prophesied in the law of Moses itself, and many other places. We don't have time to go in through all the different prophecies. There's so many different prophecies that go into this. But what we see is that he is a higher authority than Moses. He is assuming for himself the position of lawgiver. Now, so what does he do? He, is, he establishes the new Israel. He now establishes the people of God, which have the four elements of culture. He establishes the sacrifice of the mass. He establishes the office of the priesthood. He establishes an oral tradition. We, we mentioned this. Our Lord never wrote a book. He consigned his teachings to an oral teaching. And in an oral culture, people were able to remember that. Now, 
we'll see in the book of Acts how when the Holy Spirit comes, then the Holy Spirit sanctifies the bond of piety through the apostolic succession. So God is perfecting in the Logos incarnate the new people of God. Now, remember, the our Lord came to destroy the work of the devil. The peoples are under the domain of Satan. They are worshiping Satan. They seek power over the society, the king, the queen, and the kitchen, because they seek power for themselves over their own will. The law of Satan is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That is what the law of Satan is. It's voluntarism. It's anti-logos. It refuses to submit to the hierarchy of God, the logos of God. And that's why it seeks power over the society, the king, the queen, and the kitchen, government, economy, and family. So what does our Lord do when he comes and he encounters the parties of the Jews? Now, we talked about how the term Jew came to mean the three final tribes were faithful to the divinic kingdom. Now, they were faithful, they were loyal to the Davidic promise of the Davidic ruler that I, I just read from Genesis, all the way back into Genesis. This Davidic line, the other tribes had rebelled against him, they had rebelled against the cultists, so there was this loyalty to the Davidic line. But when our Lord comes, as we read in the last episode, all of Jerusalem is troubled with Herod because they have power right now over the society. They have power of their own will. They want power. They do not want to relinquish this power. Now, notice what our Lord says. Again, going back to Moses, the lawgiver, St. John chapter 5, 45. This is our Lord speaking to the Jews. He says this, Think not that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you did believe Moses, you would perhaps believe me also, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so, as we discussed in the last episodes, the parties of the Jews are actually rebelling. Not They're already rebelling against Moses by their own tradition. This is what our Lord says to them when he rebukes them. They are exalting their own oral tradition above even the law of Moses. And this is the beginning of the Talmud, which will later become codified in a new religion called Pharisaical Judaism or Rabbinic Judaism, which has no temple. So what you have here is that our Lord is claiming the authority of Moses and the Pharisees and Sadducees are rejecting even Moses. Now, here's where we get into the reign of Satan, because the, the spirit of Antichrist is simply the spirit of Satan. Here we have St. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered, the Jews, and said to him, Abraham is our father. Now recall last week we talked about St. John rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees by saying, think not that you have Abraham as your father, for God can raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. Because you're, what you're going to see in the conspiracy of Antichrist is that they're taking pride in, in whatever they can. They're taking pride or power in their own blood, in the temple, in money, as we'll see. So here's what they say. They say, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith to them, if you be the children of Abraham, do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who hath spoken the truth to you, which I heard of God. This Abraham did not. Now, we, here we see the mark of this conspiracy of Antichrist. It is not an appeal to Logos. It is, a, it is a, an imposition of the will. Of the law of Satan is the imposition of the strong, their will over the weak. And so it uses violence. It is not a, an appeal to Logos. It is the use of violence to impose their will. And, and notice what he says here about violence. You do the works of your father, they say, therefore, to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus, therefore, said to them, if God were your father, you would indeed love me. For from God I proceeded and came, for I came not of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not know my speech? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he stood not in the truth, because truth is not in him. 
When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. But I, if I say the truth to you, you believe me not. Here we see the mark of the conspiracy of Antichrist is when all these groups of people that we're going to see in just a minute, they unite together against the Logos. Their uniting principle is one of negation. Anything but Christ. That is their uniting principle. Anything but Christ. Even though, so they don't care about the truth. They don't even care if they agree with each other about what the truth is. All they care about is not Christ. And that is why they use violence. Because violence is not an appeal to the Logos or truth. It is an appeal to force and power. And that is the method that we're going to see as we see the Antichrist forming. So here we're going to, we're going to wrap up and, and go through a passage in St. Luke, which is at the end of the gospel in the, in the confrontation that happens. Now, remember, Jerusalem is the city of David. It is the capital city of Israel. It is the city against which the rebellious tribes rebelled by establishing their own cultus in Bethel. And it is the city of David, the city where the temple is. Now, here's what St. Luke says. This is a very powerful passage here. St. Luke 19, verse 11. Now, this is right after our Lord helps Zacchaeus. And he says this, This day salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus, because he also is a son of Abraham. So our Lord shows this mercy to the sinner who is also a son of Abraham, and then he says this, the son of man is come to seek and save that which was lost. Now notice what is said here in, in verse 11. As they were hearing these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately be manifested. Now he's drawing near to Jerusalem, which is the Davidic kingdom. That is the capital city, the temple. He's already in the beginning of St. John, in the beginning of his ministry, he's already cleansed the temple. Now he's about to cleanse the temple again, but he's approaching Jerusalem, his final journey. And here's, here's the parable that he tells. He said, therefore, now everyone should be under, every, all his leaders should be understanding. He's talking about the Davidic prophecies of the king. And everyone's wondering, is he the Davidic king? And he says this, verse 12, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And calling his ten servants, he gave them ten pounds and said to them, Trade till I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent an embassage after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. This is the conspiracy. We will not have this man reign over us. This is what he, our Lord is facing. And as he turns himself to Jerusalem, and then he, he tells the, the parable of the pounds where the, those who were, it is a rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and God gave the Mosaic law, but the Jews who rejected our Lord rejected the investment that our Lord had made in them. And he then takes from the one who did not invest his pound and gives it to the one who did. And then he ends with this, this very terrible verse. Verse 27, but as for those, my enemies who would not have me reign over them, bring them hither and kill them before me. And having said these things, he went before going up to Jerusalem. So our Lord is clearly pronouncing judgment on the temple and on the Jewish leaders, whoever they may be, because they are seeking their power. They're seeking to impose their will more then submit to the Logos incarnate. Now see, see what happens. Verse 37. And when he was now coming near the descent of Mount Olivet, the whole multitude of his disciples began with joy to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king who cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory on high. So this is the entrance in Jerusalem. They are proclaiming him as the Davidic king. What happens? What do the Jewish leaders do? Some of the Pharisees said, rebuke thy disciples. Now, here we go back to the stones. Our Lord says, I say to you that if these shall hold their peace, the stones will cry out. So, in the very beginning, St. John rebuked the Jewish leaders for 
thinking that they just had their blood of Abraham and that was enough. And he called on these stones to be raised up. And our Lord again comes back to the stones. Now watch the theme of the stones is very powerful here. But look at what our Lord does. After he had pronounced judgment, those who did not want me to reign over them, kill them before me. Here's what our Lord does. And this gives us a very important lesson of charity. He says this, or here's what the text says. When he drew near, seeing the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou also hadst known, and that in this thy day, the things that are to thy peace, but now they are hidden from thy eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, and thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and straighten thee on every side, and beat thee flat to the ground, and thy children who are in thee, and they shall not leave in thee a stone upon a stone, because thou hast known, not known the time of thy visitation." So our Lord, this is a very important point that we need to remember because when we speak of the conspiracy of Antichrist and the Jewish leaders, we, we, we need to have the compassion, the charity of our Lord. We need to weep over them. If we consider the sins of the Jews or the sins of any anti-Catholic force of any kind, we need to weep over their sins and offer penance for their sins for their conversion. We should not be stirred with anger, but with sorrow. This is what our Lord teaches us here. He is stirred with sorrow when he knows that Jerusalem, the city, the holy city of David is going to be destroyed as he's prophesying here and which we'll get into with the book of Revelation. So that is the charity that we need to have for Jews, heretics, and pagans, which is the conspiracy of Antichrist. We need to have a weeping sorrow over their sins and offer penance for their conversion. Now, but watch what happens. Verse 48, the chief priests and the scribes and the lures of the people sought to destroy him. Once again, the imposition of the will, this is the reign of Satan. And they found not what to do to him for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So you have this verse is repeated throughout the gospels. The leaders are trying to find a way to destroy him, but they realize that people are following him. And this is this is where you really see the contrast between a people and the masses, the mob. What you have is the people are rallying to Jesus as their Davidic king, as they should. He is establishing the people. He's establishing the new Israel. And the people are accepting him. They are following him. They are proclaiming him son of David. But... So this is the the constitution of Logos, because our Lord is establishing based on Logos. Our Lord is not forcing anyone to accept him. He is not um, manipulating them. But the Jewish leaders, they use manipulation. They create a mob. So this is not based on Logos. They They are creating a mob, which is going to do violence. So it's an emotion. And this is this is the pattern that you'll see throughout history. There is simply whipping up a mob, and we'll see this especially in, in the book of Acts, whipping up a mob in order to combat the Logos. So they're not appealing to reason. They're not having a reasonable argument about it. They're whipping up a mob, and that is the difference between a people and the masses. Our Lord said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, a sword between father and, and son, uh, mother-in-law, and daughter-in-law, because the bonds of culture that made a people, when the people reject Christ, they turn into a mob. And this is the conspiracy of Antichrist. Moving on. So chapter 20, all the different tribe, the different parties of the Jews come and test our Lord, chief priests, scribes, ancients, the Pharisees have already, already been there. And then our Lord against the stones of the temple. Remember, he said the stones of the temple did not be stone on stone. And then he, he proclaims himself to be the stone. Verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 17. But he looking on them said, and again, he pr- pronounces judgment again and, and, pr- and predicts their destruction in verse 15 and 16. But then he says, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. And then he predicts the judgment. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be bruised. And upon whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So this is the stone of the book of Daniel. We don't have time to get into this, but there's a prophecy of a stone striking the clay feet of the Roman Empire to destroy the Roman Empire and overthrow it. And our Lord is saying he is the stone. So there's this stone metaphor, which we already saw back in, in St. John the Baptist, 
Now, if we move on later in that, in that chapter, our Lord proclaims himself to be the Davidic king. The Lord said to my Lord, sit to my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So our Lord is continually pronouncing judgment on the Jewish leaders, which is calling them to repentance. He's weeping over them. He's calling them to repentance. And those who are called will be saved. Now, he says, David then calleth him Lord. How is he his son? So he's pro- proclaiming also his, his Davidic kingdom, his divinity. He is Logos incarnate. Now, in the very next chapter, that's when he makes the final pronouncement and prediction of the destruction of the temple. Verse 5, some of the temple and some of the disciples saying of the temple that it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. Again, going back to the stones, but our Lord is the stone to destroy the temple in judgment. He says, the days will come in which there shall not be left a stone upon a stone that shall not be thrown down. And then he predicts the end of the world and the destruction of the temple in one single prophecy. That's verse, that's chapter 21. And verse 17 talks about the conspiracy of Antichrist. And you shall be hated by all men for my sake. All men. This is the conspiracy of Antichrist. So what we have here are all men. It is the, we have the three archetypes. St. Saint, Saint Augustine is the one who says, Jews, the heathens, and pagans have made a unity against unity. So they have united in the principle of negation, not Logos incarnate, not Jesus Christ, the Antichrist. This is the, the spirit of Antichrist. So there's three archetypal parties that happen at the time of our Lord, who are, again, they're whipped into a mob, and they crucify Jesus Christ. So the conspiracy of Antichrist consists of these three parties, and these are archetypes of all the rest of the parties that will come throughout history. So we'll have the Mohammedans later, we'll have the Protestants, uh, Freemasons, Communists. They're all archetypes of these three in some way. And it all hinges on the way they reject or the way they interact with Jesus Christ. What do they do in relationship to him? So first there's the Jews. The Jews repudiate their loyalty to the Davidic king when they say, we have no king but Caesar. They repudiate the divinic loyalty that they once had. So the Jew is the archetype of one who rejects Christ explicitly. So this is going to later be the same spirit that penetrates the the Masons and the atheists. They're the same thing because they are rejecting Christ as the same spirit. Now, that is contrasted with the pagan. The pagan it does not reject Christ explicitly. He's simply indifferent to Christ. And this is, this is signified when Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate doesn't really care one way or another. And this is what you have in the various spirit, these, these, uh, spirit of antichrist of governments who may or may not foster the Christian religion or try to manipulate it for their own ends. They don't really care to destroy it. They might want to use it. So this is sort of the pagan mentality, which is indifference to Christ. So you have the Jews who are rejectors of Christ. You have the pagans who are indifferent to Christ. And then you have the heretics, which are signified by Judas. Judas, the the heretic, is one who accepts a heretical Christ. So you have the rejecter of Christ, those who are indifferent to Christ, and he who accepts a heretical Christ. Because Judas, Judas betrayed our Lord but he did feel remorse, but then he killed himself. So he never accepted the full Christ. If he would have accepted the full Christ, like Peter did, Peter also betrayed Jesus, but he repented. And so this is the archetype of these three parties, Jews, heathen, and heretics. And these are the archetypes of all the enemies of Christ, which happen right here in the confrontation of our Lord. Now, what does our Lord do? He, was, he came to destroy the works of the devil, And St. Paul says in Hebrews that he came to destroy he who had the empire of death. By destroying death, he set free those who were in bondage to death. And if anybody has any questions or comments, we're going to get to those in in just a few minutes. We're going to wrap up. Our Lord dies on the cross. He, He absorbs all the fury of the conspiracy of Antichrist because their weapon is not based on truth, but based on power. 
So he receives and absorbs in his divinity, in his divine person, all of the fury of Antichrist. In the grave with the body, but in Hades with the soul. In paradise with the thief, and on the throne with the Father and the Spirit. What's thou, O Christ, filling all things, thyself uncircumscribed? That is the prayer from the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Our Lord is destroying death by death. This is in the Eastern prayer, the Eastern Paschal hymn. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. It's in the Paschal sequence for Easter, the Easter service in the Latin rite. Death and life, oh, what is it? It's um, conquering king, have mercy on us. Death, death contended in a glorious fight. So our Lord is destroying our, the devil's power by destroying death. That is him taking, taking his kingdom. He is taking his kingdom, taking possession of his kingdom by destroying the work of the devil, casting out the usurper, who is Satan, which then is able to liberate the conspiracy of Antichrist. Now, but there is one more matter which was prophesied in these, ve- these passages that we read, and that is the destruction of the temple in, in, in uh, consequence of, of the Jews and the other leaders' rejection of Christ. And what we're going to see in the next video is the book of Acts, how the preaching of the Davidic kingdom, the preaching of the gospel, the Davidic kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord gives and saves all of the Jews who are predestined to salvation in the book of Acts before the destruction of the temple. So God gives Israel a few more decades There is about a generation and a half or so between our Lord's resurrection and the preaching of the gospel. There's another generation that is born and passes away before our God comes in judgment. So our God, God is so merciful to the conspiracy of Antichrist because he wept over them. And this is the charity that we need to have from our Lord for non-Catholics of any kind, whether that's Jews, heathens, or or heretics. We need to have the charity of our Lord, which weeps over them. St. Paul is going to say later, I would wish that I would be anathema from Jesus Christ for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh. That is the charity that we need to have, which all the saints displayed, which converted nations. And this is how we destroy the work of the devil in our own society. Our own society is a Freemasonic Marxist society which worships the devil. And we are here to proclaim that Jesus Christ is king and to convert the nations ultimately through the power of God, which is the Holy Spirit, which will be the next story, which will be the spirit against Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist crucified Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will be the spirit of power to unite then the church in the principle of the Logos incarnate, not the principle of negation, but the principle of a, a real thing, the Logos incarnate. So, the, uh, let me ask, uh, uh, we've got a few questions. Um, do you plan on inviting Brother Andre Marie on a, again? Uh, and what made Father Phoenix so successful in converting people? Um, I, I was not thinking about it. I We covered a lot of ground when we did our show over with Brother, Brother Andre. Um, so I think we've covered it a lot. If, if you want a, a particular aspect of that, please, you can send me a message or comment. And let me know a particular aspect that, of that that you'd like to cover that was not covered. Um, there's a, my Immaculate Queen says, everyone needs to listen to Archbishop Fulton Sheen's talk on the Antichrist. Um, Fulton Sheen is always great. Um, the, so the spirit of Antichrist, what we're going to see when we do the... Uh, we'll, so next video will be the book of Acts. We'll talk about how the conspiracy of Antichrist continues in the book of Acts and then how the Holy Spirit works in the church against the spirit of Antichrist. And then we're going to finally see the destruction of the temple, which happens in the book of Revelation, mystically. And we're going to talk about that very, very important text for the church. So if there's nothing else, we're going to wrap up here again. If you've benefited from this apostolate, please support us on Patreon. Any amount will do. Any amount will help us. We, you could get free books, get this book. 
that we've been talking out of. Also, Kennedy's book, Terror of Demons, and the um, Terror of Demons and Family Be Damned. I have Black Acoustic asking about the Didache Bible. I've never heard of that one. Let me look it up. Didache Bible, uh, Catholic. I mean, the main thing is that the second RSV Bible, I, the Catholic, I'm sorry, the um, RSV second Catholic edition Bible is the translation that you want. So this is the, looks like it has commentary from the catechism. Uh, so this is the, okay, so this 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 version does use the RSV Second Catholic Edition. So that's the one that you want to get if you don't use the Dewey Reams. That's the, the, in my opinion, the best translation. And again, we will get into the the minute details of the of the linguistics in that and why I think that. Um, but for now, if you want to, if you want to um, buy my book, I'll have a detail in there as well. So uh, Diane Alice says, "Would you define anathema for those of us who don't understand it?" Well, anathema means cut off from Christ, essentially. Anathema is something that St. Paul uses, as I said. And in another place he says, he, and if anyone comes to you and does not preach a, a, the gospel which you have received, let him be anathema. Anathema is a curse of judgment on unbelievers for the sake of their salvation. And in another place, St. Paul says, deliver him to the bondage of Satan for the destruction of the flesh, excommunication. And so this is excluding someone from Jesus Christ, from the church, for the sake of his salvation. And this is something that the church will take up in the councils as they arise later in church history as pronouncing an anathema on heretics for their own sake and for the sake of the church. It's saying that this heretic is preaching a heresy which endangers the souls of men and we pronounce anathema on him and on his heresy for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the souls now there's a very important book this book right here one of my favorites from one of my favorite authors charitable anathema he puts it this way um if i can find this quote let's see so, charitable anathema, he calls it the, um, the act of the greatest charity for all the faithful, which I think is one of the most beautiful ways of describing what the anathema is. So he says this, page five, the anathema excludes the one who professes heresies from the communion of the church if he does not retract his errors. But for this, precisely for this reason, it is an act of the greatest charity for all the faithful, comparable to preventing a dangerous disease from infecting innumerable people. By isolating the bearer of infection, we protect the bodily health of others. By the anathema, we protect their spiritual health. And did Christ not say that we should not fear those who kill the body, but fear him who has power to cast into hell? And more, a rupture of communion with the heretic in no way implies that our obligation of charity towards him ceases. Know the church prays also for heretics. The true Catholic who knows a heretic personally prays ardently for him and would never cease to impart all kinds of help for him, but he should not have any communion with him. Thus St. John, the great apostle of charity, says, If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. But he also said, If any man come to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into thy house. So it's, it's very important, as I've tried to emphasize here, our response to the conspiracy of the Antichrist is charity. It is the charity of Jesus Christ which weeps over the destruction of the Jerusalem. I see people online sometimes getting angry about the Jews, calling them Christ killers. The important thing here is that we need to remember the Good Friday liturgy. The Good Friday liturgy says, Oh my people, what, I've I, what have I done to you? Answer me. And then, Kyrie eleison. O theos, o, o eskiros. It is, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. So, let not your anger be roused against the Jews, but against yourself, against your own soul. Let us repent for our own sins in crucifying Christ, because we are all a member of the conspiracy of Antichrist every time we choose sin. We reject the logos of God, we reject his law, and we join with the Jews, with the pagans, with the heretics, in rejecting Jesus Christ 
and crucifying him. So we need to repent. And if any man is a sinner, we must weep over his sins, offer penance for him, and help instruct him and give him the charity of converting him so that he can go to heaven and not go to hell. So it's very crucial that this is the difference, which we'll talk about in the next show. This is the difference between the church and the conspiracy of Antichrist is that we proclaim Christ crucified. We lay down our life for our enemies. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. That is our response. It is not hatred. It is hatred of sin and charity for the sinner. So let's offer up a prayer on this day for all the souls of all poor sinners, the conversion of their sins and repentance for our own sins. And let's offer up this for the sake of the gospel so that we can be worthy through the prayers of Our Lady of receiving the promises of Christ. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater nostra, quies in cedi, sanctificetum nomen tuum, advenet regnum tuum, fia voluntas tua, sicut in cerdo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nubis odie, dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et nenos in ducas in tentationem, libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.